I want to encourage you and invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. As we continue our series in Genesis, and this morning we will be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which, followed through, which flowed through the entire land of Havala, where, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedalam and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for how your word guides us, it shapes us, it corrects us, it rebukes us, and how your word provides us with the strength and the intellect and the knowledge and the wisdom and the discernment necessary for how to live according to your word and how you have called us to share your word with a dark and dying world. So God, as we read and continue reading of, of your work and creation and how we find identity and purpose and belonging in these truths laid for us in your word. God, help us to cling to these things and to not shift away or not be tempted to compromise on them, but to hold fast to the truths of your word because it is your word that affects change in the hearts of man. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. So... As we discussed last week, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch. And this obviously includes Genesis as the first book of the Bible. And hopefully you noticed this last week. 
But this gives us great insight into what we read in the book of Genesis. When we know the author and the context, it helps to shape our understanding of what not only the author wanted to get across to the original audience, but what the Lord wanted to get across to his greater audience, his people, especially when it comes to the creation narratives. Now, you might have noticed I said narratives, plural. Why? Because as we also discussed last week, a close examination of the creation account in Genesis 1-1 through verse, verses 2-3, so chapter 1 and verse 1 and chapter 2 verse 3, helps us to see the incredible Hebrew poetry used as we look at the poetic structure of the story. We see it closed out, the poem of, or the, the narrative telling of what God did and how God acted in creation is closed out in chapter 2, verse 3. So with God completing his work of creation, as we see in the beginning, God created, we see that in chapter 1, verse 1, and then we end in chapter 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. So we begin with God creating and we end with God blessing, showing the, the finality and the completion of God's creative work. And then we move to and see that on the seventh day is when this happens. So the number seven being the number of completion and perfection in God's design and creation and work. And so this means that as we move to chapter 2, verse 4, it's the beginning of a new stanza is what we see there. As these are the, the records or, or the generations. And so a new narrative and so I'll, I'll expound on this illustration in a little bit, but it's like, it's like taking pictures with a stock camera lens. You know, you get a camera and it comes with a lens. And so you can take pictures with it. It's kind of the workhorse of lenses. You can, you can take almost every picture with it. And most of all, it gives you a good idea, a big picture view of what's taking place in, in your pictures. And that's what the first creation narrative gives us in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. It gives us the big picture view of God's entirety of creation. We see that completion there with God resting on the seventh day. And so then it's like taking that when we move to this new, this other creation narrative beginning in chapter 2 verse 4. It's like taking a picture with a specialty telescopic lens. So you buy a lens that specifically gives you a function and purpose where you can zoom in close and capture every detail. And so what's taking place here is highlighting what God does or God did on the day, on the sixth day of creation. And so as we do this, we get the overarching truth or our overarching truth for this morning, which is that Genesis introduces us to the personal nature of God. And so as we move to this next creation narrative, it's not describing a separate work from God. It's not describing something else that happened. It's giving us that zoomed in view of what God did on the overall work of creation, specifically looking and zooming in on the sixth day. And so that's what we're seeing this morning. And as we do that, we will see this morning that Genesis introduces us to the personal nature of God. And we see this throughout the book of Genesis, but particularly we see this here in the opening chapters of Genesis as God acts in a definitively personal way. 
revealing to us his unique character and attributes. As we see there in the first sentence of this new creation narrative, or the, this, the second creation narrative. So, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. So, so pause right there. So we start today's text with this phrase. These are the records, or your translation might say the generations. And this is the, the literal term of what is used here of the heavens and the earth. So this phrase for records or generations is used throughout the Old Testament. In fact, some of you probably read it in many different places over the last few days. And you probably dreaded doing so because it's typically followed by a long list of names that are hard to pronounce. And so when we see these are the generations of so-and-so or these are the records of so-and-so, and as it's typically followed by these family names and then the patriarch that is listed. So it's, this phrase and this word is specifically used 10 times in Genesis alone. And each time it's followed in that pattern by a record of the family line of the patriarch that's initially listed. Now the difference here is that rather than being in reference to a family line, it's in reference to the creation narrative that we just read. So remember, last week we covered Moses' use of Hebrew poetry to convey meaning and nuance. And so looking back at 1.1, we see the same phrase, as I said already, begin with the heavens and the earth to mark the beginning of a different part of the overall narrative. So as 1.1 begins with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then 2.4 begins with, these are the records of the heavens and the earth. And so we're referring back to the, the, the generations, the records, the genealogy. This is how the earth was created. And so this is what Moses is wanting to convey to the people of Israel as they're post-exodus. And they're wandering and they're, uh, they're hoping and they're wanting to know more about the God who has rescued them. Because they've long forgotten the things that have been told. So we begin the next part of the narrative by zooming in on day six of creation. So as I said, this is like taking pictures with a, a high-resolution camera. So chapter one is high-resolution. It gives us great things, and it's incredible. But chapter six really focuses in and gives us some insight and detail that we don't get when we look at the overall creation narrative. And so... God, in his grace, through Moses, provides us with Genesis chapter 2. And chapter 2 is like taking off that stock lens and putting on that special telescopic lens and allows us to really zoom in. So remember, Moses wants the people to have a greater understanding of who they are, whose they are, and what it is that they were created to do. Because this is what God's word provides for us, is identity and purpose and belonging instruction, correction, rebuke, accountability. So Moses writes, these are the generations. These are the records, the origins of the heavens and the earth. As we'll see in the weeks ahead, these were a people whose entire identity was tied to who their line was from. And so using this language would be very attention catching for the people to hear this. And they would have understood it completely. So as their identity is completely tied to who their family line is from, see, we have entire companies built on the model that they can tell you your family history. 
and where you're from by simply sending in a swab of your spit. And so now take our fascination with our family lines and multiply that because this was at the fabric of their society. And so as they're sitting there on the plane and they're still split into their original, their, their 12 tribes, there would have undoubtedly been those among the nation who were fascinated with the earth and its origins. So I pulled on this thread last week, but it reveals itself again here, this scheme of the enemy to play on people's fascinations with our origins is no new trick. There again, we see the idea of 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the disobedient to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So this is so effective because it plays on the sinful desire that we all have to make gods of ourselves, to look to human intellect and achievement and to, to make sense of our origins rather than trust the truth of God's word. And so Moses uses the familial and personal language that they would have been familiar with to communicate who it is that brought the earth into being, who it is that built the very desert in which they found themselves, that they may marvel at the power and the glory of God. Moses wants the people of God to know these are the generations, the records, the origins of everything and everyone. The world only existed from the moment it was created. And this points us directly to its source, our creator. See, modern science begins with the presupposition that there is no creator and that we have no origin. And so this faulty presupposition leaves them wrong from the start. And therefore, they continue to lengthen their estimation of how old the earth is. But what we see at the onset of this next part of the greater narrative is that God's role as sovereign creator initiates his redemptive purposes. Now, what do I mean by that? God's role as sovereign creator initiates his redemptive purposes. This is a, a play off of our final point from last week. I stated that Genesis lays the foundation for God's redemptive purpose. That was our final point last week. So what do I mean by this, this act of redemption and how do we see that in the creation narratives? That is to say that in, creation, in the creation narrative, as we look at God's actions as sovereign creator and we see him declare everything to be good, we in turn see how his actions to redeem his people, a people for himself, that they may make his name known among the nations, that these actions are motivated by the fact that he desires to look at everything and declare it good once again. So for the stain of sin to be removed and for us to live and be as he designed and created us to be. This is further revealed in the title which Moses attributes to the Lord here. I know we've only gone through one sentence. So we'll pick back up in the second sentence. Well, we'll just start from the beginning of verse four. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, did you catch that? Now, if you were with us last week, you remember I, I, I showed us the detail and the, the, the purpose behind Moses using the title of Elohim for God. 
And so, and I asked the question, why not Lord? Because in using the title Elohim, Moses is is highlighting God's pre-eternal nature that before he was known to them, before anything existed, he was God, Elohim, eternal creator. So now, did you notice the title that Moses used for the Lord here in verse four in that second sentence? At the time that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. So here we have Lord God as the title. Now, some of you are familiar with this. I mention it quite frequently because I want to remind us, but anytime we see the title of God listed as Lord, and it's in all capital letters, that is to signify or symbolize or, or, or indicate to us that that is a use of the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. So anytime you read that in your Bible and you see Lord in all capital letters, that is, that is written the covenant personal name of the Lord, Yahweh. And so as I said, as we saw last week, we saw Moses' use of Elohim as the title for God rather than the covenant name of Yahweh. And so in doing so, Moses emphasizes that before they knew him, before they were even uh, uh, existed, Yahweh, and before they even knew him as Yahweh, he existed as Elohim, sovereign, eternal creator. So now Moses, in this next narrative, uses the title of Lord God. But not only does he use, he not only uses Yahweh, he uses Elohim together. So here Moses is conveying the perfect combination of God's creator aspect and his redemptive character. And so in the children of Israel reading and hearing this. They're seeing and realizing that the Lord, the Yahweh who called them, who rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh, who split the Red Sea at the hand of Moses, who did all of these things and has provided their every need. He is creator. He is Elohim. That there is no separate, there is no pantheon, there is only one. And so this is what Moses is, is trying to get across to the people here. This title of Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is the dominant name used for God from here to chapter 4. As Moses has continued to hammer home that this, these are our origins. These are the origins of all of us. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Yahweh Elohim created the heavens and the earth. See, Moses is drawing the lines of personal covenant relationship for the people of God to connect their identity to the creative work of God. Moses is saying, this is why God, Elohim, has revealed himself to us as Lord, Yahweh, because he has been at work from the beginning. Indeed, from, the very, from before the beginning to bring about his glory in creation. And may we too, as the people of God, church, remember this, anytime we read the title, Lord God in scripture, that he is our creator and our redeemer, bringing us back, desiring to draw us away from our life of sin and bring us to a knowledge of his glory in creation. And so in verse five, as we move on, we gain insight into the power and the sovereignty of God in that phrase that the Lord God had not made it rain on the land. 
So we know from this that the, the Lord God is the one who controls the floodgates of heaven. And we see this throughout Scripture. So imagine reading that in the desert. That he's the one who controls the floodgates. And here we are in the desert. And so we see this throughout Scripture. But one of the places that puts it so eloquently is Jeremiah 14. Where Jeremiah is pleading with the Lord. And he says, Can any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Or can the skies alone give showers? Are you not the Lord our God? We therefore put our hope in you, for you have done all these things. So we gain further insight in the character and nature of the Lord God as we continue reading, as we pick back up in verse 6. But mist would come. So it had not rained, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So in looking at his creation, he sees a need to be filled, and he fills it according to his good design and purposes. You see, the need was there because he created it that way, not because it was deficient or insufficient, but because that was his creative design and work. So as the Lord looks at the the work, he looks at the ground and he sees that no plant of the field had yet sprouted because there was no man to work the ground. And so as he sees that and he sees a need, he fills the need that he created. And so in looking at creation, he fills the need according to his purpose and design. Thus further solidifying that he is not only creator, but he is the sustainer of life giving us our next point this morning, that is that God sustains that which he creates. God as creator is also the one who is our sustainer. By him and for him are all things. Notice the the phrasing used here to convey the personal and intimate nature of God's creative action. Again, the Lord God, the personal covenant redeemer and eternal creator, formed He personally formed. See, the word for formed here is yatsar. It is typically used elsewhere in reference to the work of a potter. And so last week when we looked at the the first creation narrative, we saw that when God created the animal life, he simply said, let the earth produce. And it was so. As when God speaks, things happen. So here, God gets his hands dirty and forms man himself. But it doesn't stop there. See, the other animate life is described as having breath as well, the breath of life. But here, it is God who personally breathes the breath of life into the man, causing him to become a living being. Hallelujah for God's grace which created and sustains us. See, this distinction signifies that man is not just like the other animal life, which has breath, but instead we have been given a soul. And with that comes responsibility. See, in his famous sermon on Mars Hill, Paul conveys God's grace in creation by stating this, which I also got to read yesterday. See, in Acts 17, 
Verse 24, Paul says this, the God who made the world and everything in it. See, Paul had walked through the Areopagus and he saw all these different gods. And he even saw a, a tribute, a little shrine to an unknown God just in case they had missed one. And that's literally what it existed for was they had this pantheon of gods, but in case they had missed one, they didn't want to upset that personal God or that God. So they made a, a shrine to the God that they did not know. How hopeless that must have been. And so Paul, seeing this, is distraught. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Does not live in shrines made by hands Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. He quotes, quotes the poets there. He says, since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or a stone image fashioned by human art and imagination. See, church, all life is a testament to God's grace. That's what we're getting at in this point, that God sustains that which he creates. Because we all stand guilty in our sin of trampling on the truth of Genesis 1 and 2. Of saying in our hearts, Elohim is not eternal sovereign God. Yahweh Elohim is not eternal sovereign creator and redeemer. And in doing so, we replace God on the throne of our lives. And we put ourselves as little gods and little lords on the throne of our lives. Therefore, because of our guilt, we stand deserving of eternal punishment, but for the grace of God, that he is Yahweh Elohim, that he is Elohim, and yet he allows us to live in our sinfulness. See, every breath we take is an act of complete and utter unmerited grace. We see this in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. And he goes on, Paul in Ephesians 2, to say this in verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So the one who created us, grace, so it's only by his grace that we have even been created, that we exist and have our being. So the one who created us in his grace sustains us, allows us to live, even though we have gone against and rebelled against his ways, grace, and even though we stood guilty of eternal punishment because of our rebellion against him, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Grace. See, this is it, church. This is the gospel. 
that all of us in our sinfulness have replaced the true God, the true Lord God of Genesis 1 and 2 and made little lords and gods of ourselves. But in his grace, he lets us live so that we may hear his word and respond to the Spirit's drawing and repent and live. Because as we keep reading, we see that God's personal nature and intimate relationship with us does not mean that we are left without responsibility. In fact, it requires responsibility. Pick back up in verse 8. See, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food including the tree of the life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pashan, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedlam and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So all these details of the rivers and the the sources and all of these things are meant to, to give us indication of where it was. Now, as we look deeper into some of these other things, so again, we see God here sustaining his, his sustaining nature on display as he places man in the garden. Now, where did the garden come from? God made it. So he places man, he creates the perfect condition for man to live in. Every tree that was good for food, everything that he needed, God made it. He crafts paradise, creating the perfect place where man, can, where, where man will have everything he needs for life. And then he takes man and places him in the garden. He doesn't say, go find it. But instead, he creates paradise, and then he places him in paradise. So God desires for us to have the best possible life, and that best possible life is living within his will and according to his purposes. And so he takes man, he places him in the garden to work it and to watch over it. Many times we mistakenly recount the punishment of man's fall from grace. See, we'll say, or we think that work in and of itself is part of that, but that's not the case. Because here we see that we were created for work. Work becomes laborious and painful and difficult after the fall. See, here work was worship. Work was in God's purposes and according to God's plan. So God places man in the garden to work and to watch over it. So here we see personal relationship comes with personal responsibility. And this responsibility develops further as we read and continue reading in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So we've seen God's word create We've seen God's word give life, and we've seen God's word sustain. Now, we see God's word guide and protect. See, God placed man in a place where he would have paradise, 
perfection, everything he needed. And then he says, the one, he tells him, he warns him, the one thing that will ruin all of it is this. So he doesn't leave him to find that out on his own, but he tells him according to his word, and he says, this is the thing you must not do. See, this shows us that responsibility requires accountability. As the only creature created in God's image, formed by the hands of God, and having been given the very breath of God, we are also the only creature that can receive, understand, and convey God's word. See, this is God's word delivered to Adam in this moment commands him, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God provides the parameters, the boundaries for human flourishing, and it's within his word and according to his purposes. And so that is the only place that we can find the best possible life is in his word and living according to it. You see, God provides his word here not to restrict man's enjoyment of the garden, but to enhance and protect man's enjoyment of the garden. Thus, it is with God's word in our lives that God's word is not meant to be a barrier or a hindrance to living the best possible life that we think because the best possible life is the one lived according to God's word. And so as we continue reading, we see that we are not only responsible and accountable for obeying God's word, but for sharing God's word as well. For this command is given before the creation of woman, meaning that it is the man's responsibility to accurately share God's word. As we move along in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God formed of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. Before the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So as part of the man's working at, over the garden, watching over the garden, his responsibility is to name the animals. This is part of his work. It's his duty. And so as he's doing this, the Lord is realizing that none of these helpers are suitable for him according to how God has created man. And so, verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib and he, he made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. You see, as God prepares the garden and the, the place for flourishing and, and gives Adam the responsibility of working and watching over it. Then he brings the animals and Adam is part of his duty of working and work, watching the garden, is naming them. And God sees that none of those things are suitable, are a suitable helper for him because he's created this innate desire and need for community. 
That's where we see that we are created for community. It is ever increasingly important that we do not compromise the truths of God's word because to do so is to rob those who are blinded by the God of this world. And in fact, to do so is to add on another blindfold. That when we compromise the truth of God's word and we think that we're actually being friendly or helpful or, or gracious, we're actually doing the least gracious thing possible by adding another blindfold. Because it's God's word that affects change in the hearts of men, as we've all seen over these last several days, as we've all noted how impacted we've been by simply reading the Bible together. And so to drift away from the truth is to lose the truth. And when we lose the truth of God's word, we've lost our foundation and no longer have a place to stand. So you may remember back to last week, I mentioned that one of the reasons it is so important for us to understand Genesis and the created order in particular is because we see it referenced and sourced throughout Scripture. In particular, we see the creation narrative and the created order Reference for God's good design for life and the natural process by which things are to operate. So the most prominent place we see this part of, the most prominent place we see this is in part of the creation story where God presides over the first wedding ceremony. As this is what's taking place here as Adam mentions this covenant statement with Eve. And then this is sealed by saying, this is why a man leaves his father and mother. And so even in pointing, even in telling the first wedding story, Moses points that this is the first wedding story, that this is the source. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So as we look to this first wedding marriage story, we see how God's design and creation lays the foundation for our flourishing. And that is why God's design is to be our goal and our guide for the best possible life, not what we think or desire. See, Paul references the creation account and God's created order when instructing the church at Ephesus on how the gospel structures the home. These are foundational truths which we cannot stretch or shift or compromise. That God created them male and female, creating the foundation for marriage to be solely between one man and one woman, that the marriage covenant joins for life and is not to be taken lightly, that men and women have been created with equal value but separate roles which complement each other and reflect God's glory, that as we look that there is but one design which God has for gender and that is that there are two and so God's word must be our one and only all-sufficient authoritative guide for everything in life. So that when we look at our life, when we look at culture, when we look at the world, we do so through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. Not that we allow culture to be our lens through which we look at Scripture. So that we may allow it to mold and shape us and guide us. That we may hide God's word in our heart. So that when the world is out of alignment with God's word, we can speak the light of truth. The truth of God's word into the darkness. Because when we stand on the truth of God's word and speak the truth of God's word, we share God's grace. 
This is what we see in this creation narrative, that God wanted to guide and direct and protect them, to keep them so that they could continue to work and to watch over the garden that he had created for their flourishing. And so he gives them his word as his grace to keep them away from evil. Because as we said at the beginning, it is only by his grace that we live and breathe. And it is only by his grace that we have his word. And it is only by his grace that we can be redeemed to someday experience the garden life that we were created for. This is our goal. This is our desire. To live according to God's word. To speak the truths of God's word. And to allow it to light our path. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the work that you have done in each and every one of us and collectively in us as a church family. And you have done that work through your word. And so as we look to your word this morning, we see your design for flourishing. So help us to not compromise or shift or or get away from the truths of your word, but instead to stand on the truth of your word. I pray Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that as you have drawn them to yourself through your word, that they would respond according to your drawing. That they would see your grace in providing your word to guide us to you, to provide redemption from our sinfulness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.